All right. Um, good. Good to see you guys. So uh, we all have um, we all have like a crazy uncle, right? In our family, right? Um, it, it, we, we don't want to you know put a name on it, but just for you know just kind of universal sake, let's call it Uncle Paul, right? We all have an, a crazy Uncle Paul in our life, right? I mean, it's just. Uh, that family member, and maybe he's not an uncle, maybe it's, you know, a grandpa, maybe it's, you know, a brother or sister or whatever, but that crazy Uncle Paul who, you know, every time there's a family gathering, there, he just creates trouble. Right? Maybe he's just, he's a, just kind of a mean guy, or maybe he's just always upset, or maybe he's really got high, you know, expectations for everybody, or maybe he's just super selfish, whatever it is, but we all have an Uncle Paul in our life. You know, someone who just, every time there's a family get-together, it all becomes about them, right? And they, they say things that hurt people's feelings, and, and, and people, you know, struggle with that, and there's, you know, it always causes some argument, and sometimes people walk away, and, you know, they're crying because of what he said, and sometimes they're just angry. But here's the crazy thing about Uncle Paul, is that the rest of us never do anything about it. Right? I mean, I, I think our tendency is, you know, it's family. You know, we just, we just all have to deal with Uncle Paul, right? I mean, this is, you know, just our, it's, it's, he's family. I mean, we can't really kick him out, right? And so you just kind of have to put up with it, right? And some of us, you know, maybe we, we, we just ignore it. You know, we just, you know what? I only have to deal with Uncle Paul like a couple of times a year at holidays and reunions. And so I'll just, you know what? I'm just kind of, kind of ignore him and I'll give him a nice hello and then I'll just kind of avoid him the rest of the time, right? Others of us, you know, we just, you know, we actually maybe become uh, Uncle Paul apologists, right? You know, don't blame Uncle. I mean, come on. He's had a hard life. Uncle Paul is just, you know, he's just the way he is, right? You know, and so we kind of maybe even defend him a little bit. Others of us, you know, we, we prepare our kids for Uncle Paul, right? We, uh, you know, we, before we go, we, okay, remember, Uncle Paul, he's not got it all together, and so he can be kind of mean, but don't, it's not personal, and so we kind of set our kids up, and when they get there, you know, they know that Uncle Paul is going to be crazy, right? He's just going to do something that's going to offend everybody. And, and the amazing thing is about Uncle Paul is that we eventually, everyone in a sense in the family, adjusts in order to accommodate crazy Uncle Paul. And we get this, I think, in part because of family. There's maybe some good pieces to that. But I think we get this even more so today from our culture. Uh, and it comes from the concept of tolerance. You know, our culture is really big on this word tolerance today. And when, when our culture talks about tolerance, there's four things that they have in mind with tolerance. The first thing that they have in mind is about accepting people's behaviors. Uh, you know, the idea that, you know, you can't really criticize uh, somebody who's, you know, kind of being mean or doing something that's not right or not nice until you really kind of get into their shoes, right? I mean, you walk a day in their shoes and then maybe you would understand why they're so mean or why they're doing the things that they do, right? And so first of all, our, our culture says intolerance, you got to accept the behavior. Second, it says you have to support the behavior. So the idea here is that, that we have to make space for this bad behavior or this, this person who's mean or, or whatever it may be. And so it's, we actually come to the idea that it's, that it's wrong actually to label them. 
to, to, to give them a label of being mean or being bad or that they're this person or this kind of person, whatever. We, we, we avoid that. So that's part of supporting them. Now, both accepting and supporting, I think, is, you know, we can, there, there's, some, there's some value in that. It makes sense. However, our culture continues to push tolerance to the next two levels here, which where I think it becomes actually a bad thing. And the next is that we are told by our culture that tolerance means that we embrace the behavior. We, we begin to say, actually, this behavior is, is not necessarily bad. We, we begin with, it comes from a victim mentality. The idea that, you know, it's not, it's not their fault that they are acting this way. I mean, if they would have been, you know, if they would have had better parents, or if they wouldn't have gone through this horrible, tragic event, then they wouldn't be this mean, or they wouldn't do these things. You know, so we really can't blame them for that, and so we need to embrace their behavior, because, I mean, really, what do you expect? And that it's actually wrong for us to expect that person to begin to change their behavior. Next, and the fourth level on this is, our culture tells us that we also need to promote the behavior. That the behavior is actually legitimate. That, again, based on the history, it, you know, this makes sense. Matter of fact, if you were in that spot, you would behave that way as well. And so this is actually a legitimate behavior and that it's actually wrong to encourage the person, or to, it's wrong to not encourage the behavior. That, that we don't just need to embrace it. We don't just need to say, oh, it's okay, but we need to actually say, yeah, actually, this is a good thing, right? I mean, if you were in this, this is how you should act. It's amazing that culture has drawn us into this worldly perspective of tolerance. And this worldly perspective of tolerance has also entered into the church. Now, Certainly, the, the culture of 2,000 years ago in Corinth was very different than American culture. But we can see that the, the Corinthian church in this chapter we're going to read in a moment also was impacted by this sense of tolerance in some way to the point that they were being tolerant of sin in the church. So let's read this together, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has done this, is doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you assemble and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and slant swindlers or idolaters. 
In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Now certainly in Scripture, there is a perspective of tolerance. But that perspective of tolerance has limitations, and here are some of those limitations. First of all, we are to be tolerant with the world. Unfortunately, in our North American Christian culture, we often stand in our sanctuaries and point our fingers at the wicked world and say, you all are going to hell. We, we love to judge the world and tell them how poor they are, how evil they are, how bad they are. But Scripture tells us we should not expect the world to live righteously. Why in the world would the world live righteously? If they don't bow the knee to Jesus, then they're not going to even strive to appease Him. And yet we as Christians so often are intolerant with the world. I can't associate with this person because they're evil. I can't have a conversation with this person because he's evil. Or you can't be, don't be a part of my life because you're evil. Or what, you know, it's just like amazing how we are so judgmental of the world. We also are to be tolerant of gray issues. Methodologies of how we do church are gray issues. Yet so often churches, denominations, will point at other denominations and judge the way that they're doing church. We all have the same Jesus. We all have the same Lord. We have different ways of going about it. But we want to always point fingers at how our way is the best way and their way is somehow evil and wrong and bad and we judge them for it. Little churches do it to big churches. Big churches do it to little churches. You know, the charismatics do it to the evangelicals. The evangelicals do it to the Pentecostals, right? I mean, we're always pointing fingers within the church over methodologies. We have the same, if you were to look at their statement of faith, it's exactly the same. But their difference is in how they express that difference in their methodologies and and so then we accuse them and judge them for that it creates divisions in the church which aren't good romans 14 5 talks about this idea it's talking about the days of the week that you worship and he says some of you are going to worship on saturday some of you are going to worship on sunday some of you might even worship on monday what it doesn't matter what day you worship what matters is that you're worshiping and, and, so, and so basically, Romans 14, I think, we can, if we bring this down to a principle, it's saying, look, at each of us individually must be convinced in our own heart what God is telling us how to live, what methodology we use, what, what perspective we're going to have. But we shouldn't assume that because that's what God has told us, that that's what he's telling everyone. To allow for freedom and difference of ways of expressing what it means to be a Christian. Also, we are to be tolerant of repentant Christians. Christians who, 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 who will actually say, yeah, 
I'm wrestling with this sin. I'm struggling with this sin. Matter of fact, I know it's a sin, and I uh, forgive me. Right? It, 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 we should have, be very tolerant of those. I mean, sometimes, again, in the church, we can be very intolerant of those who have hurt us. Those who have said something that is offensive. Those who have done something that's offensive. We, we get offended by that brother or sister in Christ, and, and we, we, we won't ever give them forgiveness. Even when we approach them and say, hey, you know what, you really hurt me, and they apologize, and they say, I'm sorry, we still can't handle it. And the relationship is forever damaged because we won't continue to pursue. But we're to be forgiving. We're to be restoring brothers and sisters in Christ who have, are, 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 who have sinned but who are repentant of that sin, who recognize that it's a sin. Galatians 6.1 talks about us coming alongside someone who's in sin to help them, to restore them. Colossians 3.13 talks about bearing with each other and forgiving one another. These are things we can be tolerant of. We should be tolerant of the world and its sin. We should be tolerant of the gray issues and the different methodologies. And we should be tolerant of the brother and sister in Christ who continues to sin, even though they may do it over and over and over and over again, as long as they are repentant. In these areas of tolerance, we need to continue to pursue relationship with these people. We need to pursue a relationship with the world. Yes, we know they're sinning, but we are tolerant of that sin because they don't know Jesus yet. And so we want to pursue that relationship with them, to get to know them, to love them. Matthew chapter 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, it, it, the, the, the tendency is to, when we get persecuted by someone in the world, we, we, we want to retract. We want to fall away. We want to get away from them. We want to run away from them. Instead of recognizing, oh my gosh, this person needs the love of Jesus, and I'm going to continue to love them. I'm going to continue to pursue them. I'm going to continue to pray for them. See, grace is the way that we draw people to Jesus. And if we're going to be intolerant of the world, if we're going to be intolerant of different methodologies, if we're going to be intolerant of the brother or sister in Christ who, who, who sins but is repentant, then we're going to break relationship. And we're not going to be drawn to Christ. And they're not going to be drawn to Christ. So certainly the Bible says that we need to be tolerant of some things, but also the Bible says that we need to be intolerant. And here's the, perhaps the challenge for us in the church is that pretty much everything that we're supposed to be intolerant of is within the church. Again, we're so intolerant of the world when what the Bible teaches us is that we are to be intolerant of the stuff that's going on in our own churches, in our own lives. And the first thing is hypocrisy. To, to, to have a judgmental arrogance you know, to, to point out the sin in our brother and sister eyes without, first of all, going, ah, where's my own sin? Matthew 5, again, right? Take out the log out of your own eye before you look at the speck in your brother's eye. Hypocrisy is something that, that Jesus rails against in Matthew chapter 23. He's going off on the Pharisees and the leaders of the, you know, the teachers of the law. And he's just over and over again, you hypocrites, you hypocrites, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. I mean, over and over again for like 20 verses or 25 verses. The Bible is intolerant of hypocrisy within the church. That we would proclaim, proclaim to be something that we're not. See, it's not that we are perfect, it's that we're sinners. 
It's not that we proclaim to the world, oh, look at us because we're so holy. We always point people to Jesus. Oh, look at Jesus. He is so holy. Can you believe he accepted a sinner like me? And he will accept you as well. So we're to be intolerant of hypocrisy, but more than that, we're to be intolerant of prideful rebellion. Where we begin as Christians to try to justify our sin. I think we've all been down this road before. Maybe it's a sin that's recurring. Something that we've maybe struggled with our whole life. And at some point in our life, we kind of get tired of the battle. Get tired of the struggle in a sense. And so we begin to kind of just give up the struggle. We just kind of give in to it. We just say, this is, this is me. I, I can't beat it. We stop repenting of it. And then at some point, we begin to even justify it. You know, I say, actually, it's okay. And we get all kinds of crazy ideas, and, oh, well, the world does it, so it must be okay. Or <laughs> this brother in Christ is doing it, so it must be okay. Or this sister in Christ is, you know, they've, they've done this. And, and we begin to justify our own sin. And this is really what Paul is re- addressing here in this passage. But Romans 6.1 says, Paul's writing, he says, Shall we go on sinning? He's talking about amazing grace, right? He's talking about in chapter 5 that how, how amazing it is that this grace that we have received, that the fact that be, even though we're sinners, that Christ died for us. Even though that, that we don't deserve salvation, we receive it. Even though we continue to sin, we still have this relationship with God because of what Jesus done because of grace. And so then Paul says, so, so should we just go on sinning then? Because the more we sin, right, I mean, then the more grace abounds. And that's a good thing, right, because grace is so awesome. And Paul's like, no. No. We don't justify sin by saying it's okay because, you know, God's grace. <laughs> you know, we, we, have a, we have a low view of grace oftentimes. A, a view of grace that says that, you know, because of grace, I can continue to live like hell. But grace actually gives us the freedom, even though we, in our hearts and our lives and sinful nature, are in hell, grace allows us to live like heaven. You know, we always look at grace as the lowest common denominator, that we can live less and we're still accepted. Grace allows us to live beyond what the law teaches. Grace allows us to live more righteously than we could have. In Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I want, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Well, obviously it's talking about Jesus and his righteousness, but can we look at this? It's not, it means that we can live better than the law because the Pharisees were perfect in living by the law. But we can live better than that because of grace. We are no longer bound by our sin. We can throw off the sin that entangles us, and we can walk out this path that God has given us. We can live righteously. We are to walk by the Spirit. That's what the responsive reading was this morning. Galatians chapter 5. We can live out the fruit of the Spirit. Yet we have a sinful nature, yes, but this is what we're called to. 
We are not to justify our sin. We're not to just give into it and say, this is just me. We need to continue to fight against it. Because the Bible is not tolerant with Christians who are going to just justify their sin. He's not going to say it's okay. This leads us to a discussion, maybe briefly, about judging. The world likes to throw this in our face, and even as Christians, we've picked this up, this mantra up pretty good, that how we're not supposed to judge others. Why are you being so judgmental? Don't judge anybody. And of course, the world means by don't judge anybody, it means you don't judge anything. And certainly, Scripture has lots of verses that talks about not judging your brother and your sister and these kind of things, but we need to understand that the Bible also has a lot of verses talk about judging things, like Righteousness. And so I think there's three things that I just want to briefly mention about judging that we need to understand because this is where the, the intolerance comes in. This is where the difference between tolerance and intolerance shows up in this judging practice. And so three areas of judging that I think we need to understand. First of all, there's a difference between judging someone's appearance versus judging their character. To notice a person's appearance and to respond to that appearance, appearance is wisdom. Someone walks up to you with a gun pointed at you, you would be stupid not to move, not to respond, right? To see someone's appearance, how they're dressed, how they're walking, what they're doing, and in that sense is wise. However, to not allow that person's behaviors and words to change our response is foolish. We should pay attention to appearances, that's wise but we should never allow appearances to determine the character of that person. We need to get to know them, allow their behaviors and their words and their actions to prove who they really are. Second, there's a difference between judging behavior versus judging motives. To qualify behavior as right and wrong is wise. We need to do that. As individuals, In God's kingdom, we need to judge between right and wrong. We need to be able to say, that's a sin and that's not a sin. Or that's maybe a gray area, right? And there are gray areas in sin. But to assume the motives of the action for right and wrong is foolish. To begin to look at the person's heart or try to judge the person's heart is foolish. We, we need to judge the actions and the words of people. We need to say this is right and this is wrong. But we don't then jump to the next piece and say that the person is right or the person is wrong. Also, to use any metric to determine right and wrong other than Scripture is foolish. We so often, and the church has done this over and over again throughout its history, added things to Scripture to say this is right or this is wrong. And then we become intolerant of things that we've created. Right? Additions that we've added to Scripture. We even do this with methodologies. Right? We, we, we say our methodology is right, theirs is wrong. So we look at other churches and say, well, that's, that's bad church because their methodology is wrong. Finally, in regards to judging, there's a difference between judging and condemning. 
to, to judge the quality of a person's character based on their words and actions is wise. We can determine the quality of an individual by what they do and what they say. And we, and we should do that. However, to condemn a person based on their words and actions is foolishness. That's God's work. We don't ever condemn anybody. The, the, the statement, you are going to hell, what, what are we doing with that statement so often if we said that, right? That, that, that's, not our, that's not our department. We can determine a person's character by how they act and what they do, and it's, we can continue to add to that as they continue to live. But we should never condemn a person. All right, so to the crux of the matter in this passage is, is really church discipline, Christian accountability, if you will. And the reality, and this is not probably a surprise to anybody in this room, but the church doesn't do this anymore. We don't. I mean, it just, it just doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen for a couple of reasons. The first reason is very few churches are willing to actually do it, actually approach someone. But the other reason that it doesn't happen is because if a church does have the courage to step in and do that, to confront someone in their sin, that person won't ever stick around long enough to actually see if there's going to be any reconciliation. They just leave. Well, fine, if you're, not going, to, you're going to call that a sin or you're going to you call me out on that, well, I'm out. And they just walk away. So this is actually not really practiced in the church today. And, and I would say, Paul, if he was standing here today, Paul, are you standing here today? You would say, he would say that, what are you guys doing? Why are you allowing this sin to just run rapid in your churches? Is anyone going to stand up to this guy or this gal and you're going to confront them and their sin? Or are you just going to let them continue to go on? What are, you, what are you saying about the church? What are you saying about God, right? What are you, what are you saying? That was kind of a weird, what are you saying about God thing there? He just has no sin. And I'm not God, just let me clarify. Maybe some of you guys are confused, but anyway, about God. Maybe how's that? <laughs> the reality is this, you guys, is that accountability in the church actually brings greater intimacy if we're willing to do it. See, it's actually, conflict is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to draw into deeper relationship with one another. Ken Sand, in his book, The Peacemaker, which you haven't read it, and it's been around quite a while, you need to read this book because it has some great perspectives, not only on conflict in, in the church, but also on forgiveness and apologies and all that kind of stuff. It's an amazing book, really, really good. But in his book, he says, the Bible teaches that we should see conflict neither as an inconvenience, nor as an occasion to force our will on others, but rather as an opportunity to demonstrate the love and power of God in our lives. We so often run from conflict. But God is calling us to deal with conflict. Paul is calling us to, to deal with the sin in your church not because it's sin necessarily, but just because this is an opportunity for us to draw deeper in relationship. It is sin, but we, we need to deal with that. Don't just ignore it. It's actually not going to separate you if you deal with it. It's actually going to draw you closer together. 
And there's a process, a biblical process that the Bible lays out in Matthew chapter 18. We need to approach the sinful brother or sister with humility, first of all. Again, examining the log in our own eye first before we go. And second of all, with love. We're not there to condemn them. We're there to come alongside them, to love them, to help to restore them, to help to bring them into deeper relationship. Certainly, there's a responsibility on the other side, and I just we need to know this as well. Because this is, again, as part of the biggest failure in the church in dealing with conflict. One side, we don't address it. The other side, when it is addressed, we run from it. So if someone approaches you with an offense or a concern of a sin issue in your life, don't run. Have humility to listen. With love, accept what they're sharing with you, knowing that they're doing it out of love. And then have the grace to forgive the person, even if their accusation is incorrect. But also the grace to allow them to walk with you and journey with you to restore you if it is correct. So Paul says a harsh thing here about expelling the immoral brother. And people struggle with this. and you know, ex, um, to, to kick people out of the church, how do you do that? But understand that there's two reasons for this. And the first of all is it's in order to maintain purity in our message. You know, the church is the body of Christ. This is the message, the gospel of Christ. If we allow sin to just kind of run rampant in our church and don't deal with it, what are we telling the world? What are we telling even our members of our church? That God saved us so we can still sin, sin, so we can live like hell. That's the message of the gospel, right? And, and so we need to deal with this because this is how we are going to maintain our relationship with God and with each other, is to deal with sin. Second of all, it's for the purity of the individual because, because we want them to know God. And the way to know God is not through living like hell, but living like heaven or striving to. And so to actually kick the person out of your church is, is not... It's not a mean thing. It's like the last resort to help them to recognize that the way they're living is not the way we're going to be living in heaven. To re- help them recognize that this is not acceptable behavior in God's kingdom. Help them understand that we are to strive to allow grace to, le- to live above the law, to be able to live beyond the law, to be able to live righteously. Now, we can none of us do it perfectly, but if we're humble in that and we step into that recognizing, yeah, we're going to fail, but we're going to get up the next morning and we're going to try again. We repent and move on. Kind of final thoughts on this. I, I, I think we, I want to put this in a context for us that maybe it's maybe new for you, maybe it's not, but this whole idea of church discipline, this whole idea of of dealing with each other's sin and, and, and not tolerating that. We, we need to understand that Satan has an amazing and powerful tool that he uses in America today. And the tool that he uses is isolation. 
Satan is working overtime in our culture to, to divide all of us. To, to isolate all of us. To, to push us all away from someone else. You know, the reality is this, is that God has created us, first of all, for a relationship with him, and second of all, for a relationship with one another. And Satan knows that that's God's plan, and so he knows the way to defeat that plan is to get us isolated, to get us away from each other, to not have relationship, to be divided, to be angry at each other, to hate each other, to be critical of each other, all of that stuff. He is striving to make, to isolate us from each other. And the reality is when we do not address sin in the church, it isolates us. When we, when we think that, oh my gosh, to, to, to approach this person, oh, it's, conflict is bad, oh, what are they going to do? They're going to get mad. And all the, to have that perspective of conflict and confrontation is from Satan. Because the reality is that conflict, again, is an opportunity for us to go into deeper relationship with one another. Think about the fights that you have in your own marriages. Those fights lead to deeper understanding with one another and more intimacy with one another. They're not just for nothing. They're there because they allow us to understand what's going on in each other's heart, where our weaknesses are, where our struggles are. And when we are received in the midst of our weakness, that is God's love. That's unconditional love. We experience that in our marriage relationships because we are committed to one another and even when there's struggle and there's tough times and there's conflict, we deal with the conflict. But in the church, all of a sudden now we can't deal with conflict. We've got to avoid conflict because, oh man, if we confront that person, they're going to leave. It's the opposite. If we confront the person and the person is willing to be confronted, then we can actually have a deeper relationship. So Satan is using the fear of conflict to isolate us. He tells us that we need to accept bad behavior. We need to embrace bad behavior. We need to support bad behavior. We need to promote bad behavior. Because, you know, I mean, the other, I mean what are we going to do otherwise? I mean, uh, who am I to say that this person, right? Isolation. We're different from each other. This is all that he's pushing us towards. I want to read a passage out of The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. How many have read that, this book? A few of you. Great allegory on heaven and hell. And listen to his description, just a small little bit, his description of hell. It seems the deuce of a town, I volunteered, and that's what I can't understand. The parts of it that I saw were so empty. Was there once a much larger population? He's in, talking about hell. He's in hell. Not at all, said my neighbor. The trouble is that they're so quarrelsome. As soon as anyone arrives, he settles in some street. Before he's been there 24 hours, he quarrels with his neighbor. Before the week is over, he's quarreled so badly that he decides to move. Very likely he finds the next street empty because all the people there have quarreled with their neighbors and moved. If so, he settles in. If by any chance the street is full, he goes further. But even if he stays, it makes no odds. He's sure to have another quarrel pretty soon and then he'll move on again. Finally, he'll move right out of the edge of town and build a new house. You see, it's easy here. You've only got to think a house, and there it is. That's how the town keeps on growing, leaving more and more empty streets. That's right, and time's sort of odd here. That place where we caught the bus is thousands of miles from the civic center where all the newcomers arrive from Earth. 
All the people you've met were living near the bus stop, but they'd taken centuries of our time to get there by gradual removals. And what about the earlier arrivals? I mean, there must be people who come from Earth to your town even longer ago. That's right, there are. They've been moving on and on, getting further apart. They're so far off by now that they could never think of coming to the bus stop at all. Astronomical distances. There's a bit of rising ground near where I live and a chap has a telescope. You can see the lights of the inhabited houses where those old ones live. Millions of miles away. Millions of miles from us and from one another. Every now and then they move further still. That's one of the disappointments. I thought you'd meet interesting historical characters, but you don't. They're too far away. This is what Satan is striving to do in our culture even today, to separate us miles away from each other. And he uses conflict and a false perspective of tolerance to do it. The reality is, is God calls us to real, genuine relationships with each other it's not just some kind of facade where we get together and we all do pleasantries and then we go back to our homes. Real relationship means that we get into the sin issues in our lives. It means that we get into the weaknesses of our lives and we share those with one another. That we struggle with each other in those things. It means that we are willing to confront one another when we've been offended. You know, I mean, if you get offended by somebody, you just, ah, it doesn't matter, and you walk away. That is not loving. That is, that's worse than hate. That's called apathy. But again, our world has screwed up our thinking to think that that's the righteous thing to do. That's the right way to go. That's the loving action. It's just to ignore it and walk away. It doesn't matter. It does matter. When the offense happens to, to say, no, you know what? I'm going to engage with this brother or sister in Christ because I love them and I want to know them better and I want my relationship to be better. This is what it means to be a church. That we know each other's weaknesses, we know each other's sin, and yet we still choose to love one another. We still choose to commune with one another. It is not an ignorance of the sin. It's not an acceptance of the sin. It's not embracing it or promoting it. It's to call it sin, but then to also love each other. May we be a church that embraces each other. We expel the immoral brother if need be, but that's the last resort because we want deeper relationships. We want to really know each other. We want genuine relationships where people know my baggage. Maybe not everybody. Maybe not. <laughs> but, but at least somebody knows my baggage and that we can deal with it together and that we can love each other in that. This is what God is calling us to. This is Paul's point. It's like, deal with this sin, because without dealing with the sin, we're going to be separated from one another. It's going, to, it's going to create division. But if you'll deal with the sin, if you'll just name it and come together, then we're going to have real relationship. Worship team, would you please come forward? Let us pursue relationships with the lost. Be tolerant of the sinful in this world. We need to be. We don't call them to account. That's, that's not our job. That's, that's God's department. We pursue them with the love of Jesus. But in our relationships with one another, let's not ignore sin. Let's recognize it and let's call it what it is, but let's love each other in that. 
to be willing to have that conversation, a painful conversation maybe, but to understand and see that as an opportunity to know that person better and to love them better and to receive their lover, love better. All for the glory of God. Amen.